BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Henry Tudor, the newly crowned King Henry VII, was in a very delicate position. King Richard III had been killed in battle, the Yorks were defeated, and Henry, Tudor the victor, had married Elizabeth of York to unite the families under the banner of the new House of Tudor. He was king after the extremely costly and deadly Wars of the Roses. Finally, it was over, except Henry's claim to the throne wasn't all that secure. Historian J.E. Cussens frames it well, writing, quote, Henry VII claimed the crown of England by three titles, descent, alliance, and conquest. Let's work backwards on those three, shall we? Conquest, well, that was inarguable. Henry had defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field. But the problem with claiming a throne through conquest meant that anyone else could come along and beat him, giving them as much of a claim as he had. In terms of alliance, number two, Henry's marriage to Elizabeth of York had been a smart move. Elizabeth was the daughter of King Edward VII, the older sister of the two princes lost in the tower, the princes who were allegedly killed by their uncle, also Elizabeth's uncle, Richard III. But on the other title that Henry was claiming the crown of England, descent, well, that was a shaky claim at best. Henry was the illegitimate great-great-grandson of John of Ghent, and it was an even weaker claim because it was through the female line. But who cares about that? If everyone agreed that he was king, he was king. And who was going to challenge him? In September of 1497, a man was leading an army east from Cornwall toward Taunton. He was supported by thousands of troops, mainly Cornishmen, who were upset at King Henry VII's high taxes and poor treatment, and they were throwing their lot behind someone else, someone with a much, much more legitimate claim to the throne, if you believed he was who he said he was. History would come to call the man who led that army Perkin Warbeck, but Warbeck claimed he had another name, a secret name. He wasn't just the son of a Belgian bureaucrat. That was all a cover story. Really, he had once been a prince, the younger son of King Edward IV, 
locked inside the Tower of London, while his uncle, Richard III, claimed the throne for himself. He had seen his older brother, Edward, killed, but because of his youth, the murderers had allowed him to escape. Well, he was back, and he was here to take the throne. Perkin Warbeck was really Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York, the younger of the two princes in the tower, and he had 6,000 men marching behind him, ready to help him take what was rightfully his. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. The problem with telling the story of a man who is known to history as a pretender is you'll never know for sure which story to tell. There are lies on both sides, and no actual proof one way or the other. Let's get that out of the way before we go any further. Perkin Warbeck claimed to be Richard, Duke of York. At the time, some people believed him in earnest, some people believed him because it was convenient, and some people thought he was a phony. Nowadays, plenty of historical fiction has had fun exploring the possibility that Warbeck really was the Duke of York. And to that I say, why not? Historical fiction is fun. And that certainly is the most fun version of the story. But the unfortunate truth is, there really is no proof that he was the Lost Prince. That said, there is no concrete proof that he wasn't the Lost Prince. So you're free to hold on to your favorite story if you really want with this one. Most historians do agree that the real Duke of York, the younger son of King Edward IV and nephew of Richard III, died around summer 1483, when he was nine or ten years old. Perkin Warbeck claimed he didn't. In 1491, he began to make his claim public in the Duchy of Burgundy, saying that he witnessed his older brother get murdered, but the assailants, whoever they were, Warbeck never actually specified, were struck by how young and innocent he was. They told him to run away to continental Europe and keep the secret of his true identity for his own safety. But nearly a decade later, he claims he had been kept safe by Yorkist sympathizers, and now he couldn't hide the truth anymore. He was a young man by this point. Almost every source recounts how handsome he was, how much he resembled the former King Edward IV, his supposed father, and how charismatic he was. On a brief trip to Ireland, prominent Yorkists declared that he was, in fact, the son of King Edward IV. Those Irishmen began writing letters to French nobles, and so Warbeck, with his brand new pedigree, set out for Europe to find some international allies. There was something about Warbeck that convinced people. He was handsome, yes, but also courtly, well acquainted with the habits and the practices of the York family. 
He spoke several languages. He was charming. Surely this couldn't be a common nobody. Charles VIII of France kept Perkin in France until Henry, back in England, loudly reminded his French counterpart that they had signed a treaty not to shelter English rebels. To drive home the point, England laid siege on a French city. Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, invited Warbeck to attend the funeral of Frederick III, his father, the previous Holy Roman Emperor. It was there that Warbeck was officially recognized as the rightful king of England, Richard IV. But by far Warbeck's greatest ally and supporter would be a woman named Margaret of Burgundy. Margaret of Burgundy was the widow of the Duke Charles of Burgundy, but she was English-born. She was the sister of the former York kings, Edward IV and Richard III, which made the two princes in the tower her nephews. Even though she hadn't actually seen the two princes since they were babies, she declared that Perkin Warbeck was legitimate. She was miraculously reunited with her nephew thought dead, the son of her brother. It was a sign from God. The Yorks would return to the throne of England. And so Margaret began to put forth the money for Perkin Warbeck to raise an army. It wasn't purely family loyalty on her part, a gesture out of love for a nephew thought dead. Warbeck made a deal with Margaret that in exchange for the funds and aid she was providing, when he became king, he would restore her trade licenses, pay the remainder of her dowry off, and return her manors and castle in England that had been forfeited. The stakes were raised now with his international allies, and word reached England that this Perkin Warbeck fellow might be for real, or at least a real threat. Those nobles who had opposed Henry VII in the Wars of the Roses now had someone new to rally behind. Henry tried to eliminate the domestic treason, gathering up a group of conspirators and sentencing them to death. A few were pardoned, but some were beheaded. Henry VII would not be taking treason lightly, not after he had already dealt with a pretender to the throne so recently. Perkin Warbeck wasn't the first young man to appear claiming to be a long-lost member of the York family. In 1487, three years before Perkin Warbeck began claiming to be a lost prince, there was a young boy named Lambert Simnel who challenged Henry VII for the rightful claim to the throne. According to the story, there was an Oxford-trained priest named Richard Simmons who found a young, humble boy with an incredible resemblance to the York family. The cynical explanation here is that Simmons knew that there were many in England who were not happy with Henry VII's victory, and the York loyalists needed a rightful heir to rally behind. Simmons didn't claim that Lambert Simnel was one of the two princes who disappeared in the tower. Instead, they said that he was Edward Plantagenet, their cousin. 
Apologies for the family tree here. I know the Wars of the Roses is famously complicated, but it's not super important, so if I lose you here, don't worry about it. But Richard III and Edward IV had another brother, George Plantagenet, who actually sided against them in the Wars of the Roses, siding with his father-in-law. Then, when Edward IV won and became king, he had his brother executed for treason, according to the legend, drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine. But this traitor brother, George, had had a son, Edward Plantagenet. But, you know, years forward, when Richard III was claiming that he was the rightful king, this young boy, Edward, got passed over because of his father's treason, which invalidated his claim. When Henry VII defeated Richard III and he became king, he put little 10-year-old Edward in the Tower of London for safekeeping because he realized, sure, his dad was a traitor, which made his claim a little nebulous, but he still was a threat, especially considering how nebulous Henry VII's own claim was. Anyway, there was a rumor going around that Edward Plantagenet, the young boy, escaped from the tower, and the Yorkists were eager for an excuse to try to overthrow Henry Tudor, and they declared that this boy, Lambert Simnel, was him, Edward Plantagenet, and he was the rightful king. Of course, as soon as Henry heard about that, he gets the real Edward out of the tower, who never escaped, and paraded him through the streets. But that did nothing to stop the rebellion because, one, news travels slowly in the 15th century, two, they just claimed that Henry got a random imposter, and three, the Yorkists didn't really care if Lambert Simnel was real or not. They just wanted to challenge Henry VII. And they did. Simnel's army of Flemish and Irish soldiers challenged the Tudor army at the Battle of Stoke Field, and they were defeated, but not without a rousing fight. Some historians actually claim it's this battle that is the end of the Wars of the Roses. Simmons, the mastermind behind this whole scheme, was a priest, so he got jail for life instead of execution, and Lambert Simnel who was really just a kid who had been used as a pawn, is actually pardoned by King Henry. But back to Perkin Warbeck. Funded by Margaret of Burgundy, his maybe aunt, and maybe someone who just wants to take Henry VII down, Warbeck arrives on the southeast coast of England at Deal. The king's army is there in full force, and Perkin doesn't even get off his boat before he realizes he made a terrible mistake and should try to take England through Scotland. King James IV of Scotland is more than happy to have him. It's while he's in Scotland that Perkin Warbeck marries the daughter of a minor Scottish noble, a woman named Lady Catherine Gordon. It seems it was a love match, but some take the arrangement as proof that no one actually thought that Warbeck was a lost prince, or he wouldn't have had such a lowly marriage. I mean, it was a fine marriage, but not the type of match one would have made if you were actually the son of a king and the rightful king of England. Warbeck stayed in Scotland for two years, 
and he was actually an incredibly valuable political pawn, if nothing else. The ambassador from France actually offered the King of Scotland money to send Warbeck back to France. But James IV was ready to fight against England, and he wanted Perkin Warbeck by his side to help rally Yorkist support. Unfortunately, they didn't get far, about four miles into England. The support that they had hoped would rally for Perkin Warbeck in Northumberland didn't. And when the English army started coming up from Newcastle, Perkin and the King of Scotland realized that they were cooked. James of Scotland recognized that he had bet on the wrong horse. And so while he frantically tried to make a peace treaty with England, he ditched Warbeck as fast as he could. James got Warbeck passage to Waterford after Warbeck was forced to pawn a horse for cash. The name of the ship, fittingly enough for one claiming a birthright that may not have been his, was the cuckoo. Cuckoo chicks are notorious for hiding themselves in another family's nest. And so, nursing the defeat from his attack with Scotland, and nursing the speed with which James wanted to get rid of him, Perkin Warbeck rode away on the cuckoo. Warbeck was practically chased by English loyal ships to Ireland. There's a possibly apocryphal story where a Spanish ship allied with England shouted to the captain of the cuckoo, telling them to surrender Perkin Warbeck for a reward of 1,000 marks. I've never heard of that man, the captain shouted back. Meanwhile, Perkin Warbeck was crouched inside a vat of wine. Warbeck's support and his numbers were dwindled, but he hadn't lost faith. He hadn't given up. His last rebellion would be his largest. Perkin Warbeck would finally make his stand. There had already been a rebellion in Cornwall just a few months before Perkin Warbeck arrived. It had been unsuccessful, but Warbeck was hoping to capitalize on the Cornish discontent with the king. In front of a crowd of Cornishmen and women, he promised that he would put an end to the outrageous taxes that King Henry VII had levied in order to fund his war against Scotland. Ironically, a war which, just weeks before, Warbeck himself had been fighting alongside of on the side of Scotland. His words were effective, and atop a crag on what is now Bodmin Moor, Perkin Warbeck was crowned King Richard IV. Six thousand men were behind him. All of the failed uprisings against Henry Tudor had led to this moment, the moment that all of the Yorkist sympathizers and all of the people who hated Henry had found their champion. Unfortunately for everyone, Perkin Warbeck wasn't quite as brave as his men might have hoped. Almost as soon as he got word that the king's scouts were nearby and that the king would be fighting with the full force of his army, Warbeck panicked and ran. In the middle of the night, he gathered 60 horsemen and fled from battle. He raced to Bailu Abbey to try to get sanctuary, but they were soon surrounded. 
Perkin Warbeck was captured, and his six-year run as the missing prince was over. While London citizens shout and hooted at him in the street, Warbeck was led on horseback to the Tower of London, where he was imprisoned for the first, or if you believe he was actually Richard of Shrewsbury, the second time. During interrogation, Perkin Warbeck gave his true life story, a full confession, or I suppose depending on your perspective, an invented story to appease the Tudors given under duress. Warbeck was born to a comptroller in Belgium, and he learned Dutch when he was 10 and got a job with a local cloth merchant in Antwerp. He learned English when a Breton merchant brought him to Ireland when he was about 17, and it was there that he first got the idea or inspiration that he would impersonate a prince. Cork, Ireland was filled with Yorkists, and when they saw Perkin Warbeck, a handsome young boy wearing the fine silk clothes of his merchant master, probably just advertising his master's skill, they declared that he must be the missing prince. That's when, Perkin Warbeck says, he began making the claim in earnest, a claim which became easier when he made his way to Burgundy and made the acquaintance of Margaret of York. He also met a man named Edward Brampton, who had been King Edward IV's godson. It's plausible that the two of them, Margaret and Edward Brampton, could have taught Warbeck the details of Richard of Shrewsbury's childhood and details of the York family dynamics. This is the scene in the movie version where they're teaching him how to be a prince and comport himself with courtly manners. For someone who had just marched with an army to try to usurp the King of England, as soon as Warbeck confessed that he was an imposter all along, Henry VII treated him with almost shocking grace. Warbeck is brought to court, and even though he is kept under guard, he's brought along to royal banquets. It seemed that Henry was trying to keep his enemies close, and as long as Warbeck was continuing to openly and loudly declare that he was an imposter, then he, Henry, was content to keep Warbeck around as something of a peculiarity. But then Warbeck tried to escape again, and when Henry recaptured him, he's less merciful. The king put Warbeck in stocks on a scaffold in front of Westminster Hall and forced him to loudly declare his confession that he was an imposter in front of a crowd of people. He would be in the stocks for five or six hours. Henry made sure that the whole story was written down and that it was printed and spread widely so that everyone would know exactly who Perkin Warbeck said he was. He confessed there would be no more dissent in Perkin Warbeck's name. In fact, the name Perkin Warbeck would become so synonymous with pretender to the throne that 150 years after Warbeck's death, anti-Jacobite propaganda would refer to the Bonnie Prince Charlie, a claimant to the throne, also called the Young Pretender, as Perkin. 
After Warbeck's public, metaphorical flogging, he was sent back to the Tower of London, to chambers alongside Edward Plantagenet, the real Edward Plantagenet, the one that Lambert Simenon, that young boy a long time ago, had impersonated. Warbeck may have been a cowardly soldier, but when it came to his freedom, he was willing to risk it all. We don't know the exact details of how involved he was, who spoke to who about what, but together, Perkin Warbeck was planning an escape with Edward Plantagenet to put Edward Plantagenet on the throne. The plan was a little silly. The idea was that they would blow up the Tower of London, and they never made it out. And at this point, the king had no mercy left and no patience for anyone who might be a threat to his throne. Both men were hanged in 1499. Edward Plantagenet, who had been a genuine royal, the nephew of two kings of England, and Perkin Warbeck. Perkin Warbeck, once celebrated as the son of a king, once called a king himself, was buried in an unmarked grave. Some maintained that Warbeck actually was Richard, Duke of York. Another theory that some posited was that Warbeck was one of King Edward IV's illegitimate children from a period of debauchery in the Low Countries. This is one of those historical situations that will never have a real resolution one way or another. You can't prove a negative. A king is a king because he says he is, and when he has the strongest army behind him, people have to believe him. Perkin Warbeck was temporarily a king, and it led him to the end of a noose. Warbeck's wife, Catherine, the Scottish noble, would fare much better. She would live another 38 years and would remain a prominent member of the Tudor court for the rest of her life. And another slight happy note to end the story on, do you recall that other imposter, the child Lambert Simnel, who had been so young when Irish forces rose up behind him and declared that he was Edward Plantagenet? After King Henry VII pardoned him, his life actually wouldn't be that bad. He went on to become a scullion in the palace and, eventually, the Royal Falconer. That's the story of Perkin Warbeck, but keep listening after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit about how Warbeck's execution connects with one of our favorite Tudor queens. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It must have been a genuine relief for Henry VII to have a reason to hang both Perkin Warbeck and the real Edward Plantagenet. Henry was trying to marry his eldest son, Arthur, to a Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon, and in order for her parents to agree to the match, they wanted to be certain that he wouldn't be usurped. So Henry had to convince Spain that he was the legitimate king of England beyond all doubt and beyond all threats. Eliminating those threats through execution was a helpful step. Catherine of Aragon knew that the hanging was distantly a result of pressure that her parents were putting on England on her behalf, and she felt incredibly guilty about it. A lady-in-waiting, Jane Dormer, would write in her memoir that Catherine would feel responsible for the death of the innocent Edward Plantagenet, and Catherine would experience tragedies later in her life. There would be the young death of her husband, Arthur, the sort of no-man's land that Henry VII kept her in after the death of her husband, her inability to bear male children for Arthur's brother, her next husband, King Henry VIII, Henry VIII's affair with Anne Boleyn, Catherine's banishment, plenty of tragedies. And Catherine, at least according to this lady-in-waiting, would think that it was punishment for that death that she inadvertently caused. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.